Good morning, my name is Delaney. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make idols for yourselves, no form whatsoever, of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them, because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading. My name is David. It's taken from Galatians 5, 16 to 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Lindsay. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The gospel of the Lord. remain standing as we pray. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you, Lord, and that in this time we would hear your voice to us. We would hear your word to us, bringing light and life and making us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name, and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. This is week seven uh, in our series on the Holy Spirit, and it's going to wrap up next week, so there will be eight total, but here we are near the end of it, week seven, and we've affectionately called this the Holy Who as a way of um, saying that we understand that sometimes when it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit, we bring all kinds of different maybe preconceived notions, maybe different negative experiences, maybe even our own sets of, of fears or, or apprehensions about the Holy Spirit. And so we've wanted to sort of look with fresh eyes uh, through the Scriptures about what they say about the Holy Spirit. And we began week one talking about what Christians have confessed about the Holy Spirit 
the, the phrase that he is the Lord, the giver of life. And then week two, we talked about what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit toward the end of John's gospel. And then week three, we talked about in the book of Acts how Jesus is the Holy Spirit, is the power to bear witness to an arriving kingdom of God, to live in a different way. And then in week four, we said, okay, well, there are, it's not just a power to bear witness to this kingdom out there, but it's also the power to sort of bring gifts to one another in the community. And so we spent two weeks talking about the gifts of the Spirit at work in us for the glory of God and for the good of the church. And then last week, Pastor Jason Jackson gave a fabulous message on the Holy Spirit and the church. Because the temptation is to say, look, if I've got the Spirit, why do I need you? And frankly, it might be easier without you or you or you, right? And instead of recognizing that actually it is the Spirit who forms us together as one new community of a diverse group of people of Jew and Gentile, and how it is our very unity in the Spirit that witnesses to the world. This morning, I want us to wrestle with the question of what it means to walk in the Spirit. Now, we have four children. Um, We have three girls and a boy. Our our son is seven, and uh, he likes the sports. He likes all sports, any sport. And so he does soccer mostly, but he's been doing basketball lately. And so we've been doing basketball at the YMCA. Now, I've discovered with the soccer team, I'm the coach, and so we approach the games uh, with as much um, vigor as we can. You know, preparation, we, we play to win, even though nobody else is keeping score, we are, and uh, we are that team. But, but on the basketball court, I've noticed at the YMCA, I'm not the coach, but at the YMCA, things go a little bit different. Uh, there's a different priorities, you might say. And so I've, I've sort of tried to pick up on how the referee calls the games. And so there's, there's kind of some additional made-up rules that are age-specific. And so at their age, they don't allow the kids to steal a, the, uh, the ball, for example. Uh, too bad. And, uh, and, they, and they don't allow us to play full court press. I can't imagine why. And so, uh, and so they just really want the kids to kind of get the basics of the game. And I get that. Except that I've noticed that sometimes the ref is inconsistent about which rules he's calling. And so sometimes uh, a kid will run with the ball and the ref won't call traveling. And then if another kid who knows how to dribble takes two steps, the, the ref will call traveling. So it's a bit inconsistent, much like the NBA. And so there, I, I, I'm, left wonder, I'm left wondering, how, which rules, how, how are we going to play the game today? I mean, I, do double dribbles actually count, or how, how, how does this work? And I started thinking about this, and because I am a pastor, I thought, you know, this is exactly how we think about law and grace. And so we tend to think that law means a stickler, one who follows the rules, and grace is someone who doesn't really care because, my goodness, they're so cute. And so we sort of wonder, as Christians, which God we're going to get. Are we going to get the God who decided he was going to call the rules right by the book and say, ah, weep, foul, or are we going to get the God that says, oh, you're so cute, that was terrible, but it's so cute. You're fine. Let it slide. Wink, wink. And I've realized over the course of the years that we actually have a pretty faulty understanding of both law and grace. And so we find ourselves unable to figure out what we're supposed to do with this. Which, is, which God is God like? 
My hope for you is that by the end of the sermon this morning, when you understand what it means to walk in the Spirit, you would say both versions are wrong. Both visions of God is either the stickler, the rule, sort of, you know, hard, by, hard line by the book, and the one who's sort of the softy grandpa, you know, and every grandparent in the room knows you're kind of like this. You're like, well, we're not the parents anymore. We had our years of being sticklers. Now we're just going to be, hey, you want another cookie? Because I don't have to deal with your hyperactive follow-up, right? So I want to lay the groundwork by saying a couple things. First of all, when we look at the Scripture, particularly when we read the Old Testament, the, the word that is used very often um, for our word law, the word that is behind that in Hebrew is the word Torah that refers to instruction. So law is not rules, law is instruction. Now for us, when you hear the word law, the first thing you think of, ah, rules, but for, some, for, for the, the ancient Israelite reading, uh, hearing the, the, the scriptures being read, they would have said, law, the instruction, the teaching of the Lord. In fact, the commandments, see, here's, here's the thing. Rules can be arbitrary, but instructions have to do with design. Rules can be arbitrary, but instructions have to do with design. That's why when you read a psalm like Psalm 19, it starts off by talking about the creation, and then it talks about the law of the Lord. Why? Because the commandments are built into the creation. You might even say the commandments are a way to live with the grain of the universe. To live with the grain of the universe. And so these two things go together. The commandments and the creation. Why? Because these aren't arbitrary rules. These are instructions that have to do with design. Okay, how many of you, when you get a new appliance, you read the manual? Yeah, that's what I thought. Come on, don't lie. Now, how many of you, when you're building Lego, or you're playing with a kid, and you're building a Lego set, or back in the day when you used to build Legos, would use the Lego instruction booklet when you're building Legos, right? More of you, good. Now, how many of you, if there were a set of instructions and stipulations and explanations about how to make the most important things in life work, such as your own life, your relationship with others, your marriage, parenting, how many of you would read that if that existed. Right. And so this is how, the, for the ancient Israelites, they, they're saying the law is not some kind of arbitrary set of rules from a dictator God. Rather, this is an intimate. It's almost like the vows in a wedding ceremony. It's almost like the, the way that this relationship is supposed to work, the way we're supposed to live. In fact, the second thing I want to say about the law is that the law was never a way to be saved the law was the way to walk since we have been saved, or since they had been saved. Now think about this, okay? We always think about the law with all oh, Ten Commandments. Aren't those a whole bunch of rules, Glenn? Right, but the story doesn't begin with the Ten Commandments. You remember last year we did a series on the life of Abraham. <laughs> You're like, uh. <laughs> the story of us is on the podcast. Now God chose Abraham. Why? Because God is gracious. God chose Abraham and then Abraham's descendants find themselves in trouble. They're slaves in the land of Egypt. And so God saves them. Why? 
because they were the descendants of Abraham, the chosen family. Both of those things happened before a law was formally given. The choosing of Abraham, the rescue from Egypt, and then the commandments are given. In fact, when you and I start to read, think of the Ten Commandments, where do we start? We start with, you shall have no other gods before me, right? But Jason was pointing this out to me this week. He says, actually, in Exodus, where it begins is, remember, I am the Lord your God that brought you out of Egypt. In other words, the quote-unquote law and commandments don't begin with rule number one. They begin with, I saved you. They begin with, I rescued you. I brought you out of the house of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I saved you. Law was never a way to be saved. It was always the way to walk since we've been saved. My friend Joe is here. Joe is uh, kind of a, a Jewish scholar and, and a, a rabbi in town. He and his wife at the Air Force Academy. And, and Joe and I had a good chat this week about one in the rabbinic tradition, the word for law has the same root as the word for walk. And so it came to be in the understanding that the, the law of the Lord really has to do with how you walk. And not just how you walk, but actually the way, a particular way. And not just the way, but the steps along the way. When you think of it that way, all of a sudden, all of these psalms begin to make sense. Think about Psalm 1. Blessed is the person who doesn't walk in the way of sinners, or sit, or or stand, or sit, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Or Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This idea of the commandments and the teachings and the instructions of the Lord are all about how we are to live. Step by step, walk along the way. So in a sense, Joe said to me this week, in a sense, the law is itself a grace. The law is itself a kind of grace. If these aren't arbitrary, arbitrary rules, if this really has to do with design and creation, if this really is the way we are to live since we have been saved, then the law itself is a kind of grace. Look, if it were not a kind of grace, you couldn't have the psalmist gushing about the law the way they do. You read the Psalms like, I love your law, O Lord, your precepts, I delight. They're sweeter to me than honey. You wouldn't say that about some arbitrary rule, right? Nobody pulls out the IRS tax code and says, I love these codes. (laughs) Sorry, it's just that time of year. But for the psalmist, they're like, I get it. This is good. I love you. The law itself is a grace. Actually, every parent in the room knows what it's like to have rules that are actually for the good of your children, even though they don't know it. One example, bedtime. Basic, right? It's basic. This is, this is your bedtime. Why is it my bedtime, you tyrant? You know? It's like you, you don't understand, but having a bedtime is a grace to you. Because it will make you function better tomorrow. I say to my kids, it will help you be happy and healthy in the long run. So I want you to go to sleep now. And they're like, they're at the age still where it's like, you're the worst. Your commandments are burdensome. 
you know. But one day, God willing, they'll say, Mom, Dad, how I love your law. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that'll happen. But you can see how there, are, there, are, there is a way that some rules, not all rules, but there is a way where instruction and teaching can be itself a form of grace, a form of a gift. And yet, and yet, and yet, even something designed to be a gift can become a burden. And so when we follow the story of the Old Testament, we see a people who are unable to be faithful to their covenant, are guilty of breaking their agreement with the Lord. And in the end, you come to the sort of cliffhanger moment of saying, who's righteous? Who's faithful? The, the, the line of kings has fallen apart. The priestly lineage has shown itself to be corrupt. The prophets itself have, be, have colluded with ungodly rulers. What's going on? Nobody is actually walking in your ways. In fact, one of the ways the Old Testament says it is this, some kings walked in the way of Jeroboam, the way of idolatry, and other kings walked in the way of the Lord, but not in a full sense. And so you reach this point where you're saying, this was designed to be good and a gift, and yet it's not working. And this is the moment where Christians come and say, well, you see, all of that was just garbage. I mean, thank God we're not under that. And I mean, did, didn't we just read Galatians 5? We're not under the law. And so we, we think then that the, the corollary to law is grace, by which we mean, who cares? As if God was like, wow, that was a disaster. Okay, new rules. How about just do whatever you want and I've forgiven you? Right? And you're like, well, great. But that's actually not what the followers of Jesus do. In fact, the parallel of the law in the Old Testament is not a kind of grace that says do whatever you'd like. The parallel of the giving of the law is the giving of the Spirit. The parallel to the giving of the law is the giving of the Spirit. Why? How do we know this? Because of the timing of it. So in, in the tradition that developed... The, the commandments were given on the 50th day, the conclusion of the Feast of Weeks. After seven weeks, the Feast of Weeks, there's this day called the Day of Pentecost. And it became tradition that the commandments were given on the Day of Pentecost. Well, hang on a minute. What does the New Testament say was given on the Day of Pentecost? The Spirit. And so the followers of Jesus began to connect the dots. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This has always been the way we're supposed to live. But the answer is not that God changed his mind. God softened in his old age. God stopped being so fussy about all those rules. That's not it at all. They said, you know what began to happen? Is we began to understand that now there is the giving of the Spirit. And there's more that happens to, to, to the law that we could get into another time about what happens with circumcision and dietary restrictions and holy days and how the, the followers of Jesus began to reinterpret that by saying, look, we're now all one community, Jews and Gentiles, so some of those things do pass away. But the very heart of the law is now internalized in us by the Holy Spirit. Listen to Galatians 5. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Now what if Paul knew exactly what he was doing? What if Paul knew that 
our vision of the law is a related concept to how you walk and the way to live. What if that's why the followers of Jesus were the followers of the way? And so Paul says, walk in the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We're going to talk about desire in a minute. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Why? Because what the law tried to do from the outside, the Spirit now perfectly does from the inside. What the law tried imperfectly to do from the outside, the Spirit now perfectly does from the inside. So Paul says, look, if you are supposed to walk in a way, but you don't, this no long, you don't longer have this external guide of how to walk. You now have the very life of God in you that says, now, if I walk with the Spirit, I, I, I don't need to be under this thing because I am going to walk free from the flesh. But notice that Paul doesn't say, walk in the Spirit and do whatever you'd like. I mean, think about that. Actually, it would have been really good news in a very shallow sort of way to the Christians living in Galatia and living in these Roman outposts. And if Paul had said to them, you know what, guys, it's a lot of work to be different in your morality and in your ethics than the, than the, the pagans around you. It's a lot of work to think differently. So I tell you what, just have all the sex you'd like, and now you're listening, and get as drunk as you want, and do all the sex, because your pagan neighbors are doing it, and hey, Jesus has forgiven you, so just go ahead. But he doesn't say that. He says, listen, there is an inclination of the flesh, and it still leads to destruction. It's just that the way to overcome it is not trying to comply to something out here, but it's trying to walk in step with the Spirit in here. That's what changes. The goal doesn't change. It's not like the goal changes, saying, now the flesh, who cares? No, what has changed is the means and the power. So keep following with me, Paul, in Philippians See, if you, if you read Paul's letters, he says so much about a new way of living. And this is why it doesn't work to kind of do this false du- uh, duality between law and a cheap kind of grace. A grace that's like, well, you're forgiven, so who cares, right? If that were true, most of the New Testament would be irrelevant. I, and, and sometimes you'll hear preachers say, look, the law says do, but grace says done. Jesus did it all. That's partially true. Jesus does fulfill the law. But it's because Jesus fulfilled the law that now we have the Spirit so that we can live this way too. Both things matter. What Jesus has done and what the Spirit is doing. And if you cut off the theology of the Spirit from Paul. If you cut out Paul's theology of the Spirit, there is no way you could think about Paul's morality or ethics. Let me say that another way. If you fail to grasp the work of the Spirit in your life as a Christian, you will have no use for Christian morality. All of the ideas about Christian morality and, 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 and being celibate outside of marriage and all of, all of those all of those pesky things about Christian living 
will be completely useless to you and burdensome to you unless you grasp the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the gospel is not just the good news of what Jesus has done. It's the good news of what the Spirit is doing. This is how Paul says it in Philippians 2. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How many sermons stop there? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you're like, oh dear God, yes, I am a miserable wretch. But it doesn't stop there. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For it is God who works in you both to will, both to, yeah, to will and to work for his good pleasure. I like the way the CEB puts it. It says, God is the one who enables you both to want and to actually live out his good purposes. That, my friends, is good news. That is the good news of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Somebody said, Jesus plus nothing is everything. I was like, unless you mean the Holy Spirit. Because otherwise we don't have a Trinitarian gospel, right? To take the gospel in its full Trinitarian force is to see the love of the Father, the gift of Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. So if we were to kind of look at this verse and say, okay, I'll unpack that a bit, we'd say the Spirit is the power to reorder our desire and to transform our behavior. Now leave that up there for a minute. How many times do we skip right away to that last word? Behavior. I just want to change my behavior. And so we're happy to find tips and techniques to change our behavior. Look, I'm all for tips and techniques. But if the tips and techniques don't come with the power and a a reordering of your desires, then it's not yet the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? Then it's just behavior modification. Then it's just trying to do some sort of little overhaul on the outside, but nothing has actually changed. It's like a kid getting a toy on, on his birthday that requires batteries, but batteries were not included. That is a terrible feeling. When you're like, yes, this new fire truck requires three C batteries. Where are the batteries, Daddy? I don't have the batteries for you. To promote the Christian life without calling people to the power of the Holy Spirit to live this life is to give them a toy with batteries not included. It's, just, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. But secondly, see that second word there, desire. See, discipleship is not just about changing behavior. Discipleship is about reordering desire. True discipleship, if it's really going to get in the bones of you, it's got to reorder your desire and your love. This is why they said to Jesus, they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, okay, what are you going to tell us about Jesus? Are you going to tell us about which, which behaviors matter more than others? Jesus says, let me get to the heart of it. It's about your loves. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself because if your loves are rightly aligned, your behaviors will follow. Or at least they won't be far behind. 
You may have some work to do in rechanging your habits, and there's some work to do in re- remapping your brain and all of that wonderful stuff, but desire's got to be different. I think about this with like the dieting stuff, you know? And when people are like, I'm on this new diet, I'm going to do this new thing. I'm gonna... That's great until the diet's over. Because I have a problem. I don't crave kale. <laughs> I don't have a hankering for broccoli. But until my desires change and I realize that a salad is better than Chick-fil-A, oh God. (sighs) You can put me on a forced plan for a little while, but my appetite has to be reshaped. And this is the thing, we want external sanctification where it's like, just give me the fast track to changing this and I want all, and sometimes God's like, uh-uh, I'm, I got you on the slow track because I don't want to just change your behaviors, I want to reorder your desires. And that's a longer process. But that's what the Holy Spirit will do. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. I heard a story recently, you know, New Life helped start the Dream Centers of Colorado Springs, and we've got se- several different pieces of that. One of the pieces of that is a women's clinic where we provide a really amazing medical care for women who are uh, underinsured or uninsured. And in fact, we have a 3D ultrasound imaging machine there. It's, um, it's an amazing technology where women can see in, in, in as advanced technologies we have what's being formed inside them. And I heard a story recently of a woman who had come into our clinic instead of uh, other places and there was a lady there who got to talk with her and just listen to her and, 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 and love on her and, and in their follow-up conversations this young uh, lady told the woman who worked at the clinic she said yeah I've decided not to go through with an abortion because I, something's different I, I see differently I think differently now, I know there's places where we've got to change laws and all that, and I'm not going to get into any of that. But it's the Holy Spirit's work to change people's desires and hearts, to get in on the inside and say, I, I don't even want that anymore. I don't have a taste for that lifestyle anymore. And, and you can talk to me. I know, that, I know different ones of you in the congregation. Your part of your testimony is how the Lord changed your taste for things overnight taste for a certain kind of life. That's what the Spirit of God does. Paul goes out and spells this out in in Galatians 5. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul's sort of like, you get the point, okay? I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit inherit the kingdom of God. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, the kind of grace that makes no claims on you is not actually the grace of God. All of Galatians is about a false kind of gospel. Paul says it pretty strongly. In fact, Galatians is the one letter where Paul skips his niceness in the opening greetings. Every other letter, he's like, I hope things are well. This one, he's like, who has bewitched you? You know? It's not a happy letter, per se. 
And the reason is Paul knows so much is at stake. Someone has told you that you could believe in a grace that makes no claims on you. And Paul says, look, if you carry on, you're actually not an heir of the kingdom. It's not about legalism. It's Paul saying, the grace of God is meant to change you. Listen, that's totally cool. Parents, listen, I want you to know this, okay? My kids have been in, in service with us. I want New Life Downtown to be the place that kids of all ages can always sit in, and it's okay, all right? If we ever become the place where that's awkward or whatever, people start, don't be the people that stare. And all, otherwise, let's just close shop, all right? This is for everybody, all right? So you're okay. And then Paul says, look, that's the works of the flesh. But then he says, but listen, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, when you let the Spirit do His work in you, it's going to produce things in you that you don't even have to worry about an external guide anymore because it's going to produce the right stuff in you. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have already crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does this mean for us, church? It means very simply that it is the Holy Spirit's job to produce the life of God in us. It's the Holy Spirit's job to produce the life of God in us. This is why I like some types of New Year's resolutions, but I don't like other types of New Year's resolutions. The kind that puts ourselves on a certain self-improvement track. The kind that puts sanctification on a schedule. The kind that says, God, I am going to get better at this. I just, I just want to warn some of you that are a little more on the type A side of things. That, that you're not in charge of the process or the progress. You're not in charge of the process or the progress. That it is the Spirit who produces the life of God. So there might be something like, I thought we were done with that, Lord. And he's like, yeah, there's another level, layer here to work on, you know. But it's the Spirit's work to produce the very life of God in us. I think about this with parenting. As, kids, as our kids get older, it's less about saying, don't do this, don't do that. And it's more about teaching our kids to say, how can the Lord help you with this? Yesterday, we had one of those good Saturdays. And by that, I mean we, we had, a, good, we had a, a family prayer time. You know, it's a good Saturday when that happens, right? And we're reading through the parable of the sower together and talking about it. And So what, are you, what, what is the kind of fruit that God wants to have in our life? Someone goes, oh, the fruit of the Spirit. Right? That, that's correct, you know, Sophia. And then, and then so, so what, what do you think we need to do? Well, we need to have soft hearts. Okay, great, great, great. So, so what does it mean then? And helping them understand that, look, those moments where you feel irritated at your sibling, at your brother or your sisters, or, that's, that's, that's part of the flesh. That's part of being you know, fallen, but the Holy Spirit wants to work in you to change the very posture of your heart, so that our goal is, uh, with all of our children, that we're do having less conversa fewer conversations about don't do this, and more conversations about what's the Holy Spirit doing in your life? How can the Lord help you here? How can you invite, have you prayed about, you know what, I, I need to pray more, I want to pray more about that. I want to pray about this. I want to allow the Lord to do His work here because it's the Holy Spirit's job to produce the life of God in us. And it's our role to participate 
in the Spirit's work. The end of Galatians 5, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Man, I love this. You think Paul's got Psalm 119 in his mind here? About the law being a lamp for every step of the way. You think Paul's saying, God, guys, it's the Spirit. Let's keep in step now with the Spirit. Keep in step with Him. And then, you know, because there was no chapter divisions when Paul wrote this, just swing down to chapter 6, verse 7. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially those who are of the household of faith. My father-in-law is a farmer, and you know the darndest thing about farming? you got to do it again every year. You're like, good crop, great, let's get ready for the following year. Like, doggone it, I thought we just did this. Right, but this is part of the rhythm. So we had a good, good harvest, great, let's clear the ground, let's do the chores for the winter, let's make sure things are set, and so come springtime, we're going to plant again, we're going to water again, we're going to weed again, glory to God. And then in the fall, we're going to harvest again. This is what Paul is saying to people who understand agrarian life. He's saying, look, you want to keep, you want the Spirit to produce this kind of fruit in you? Then sow to the Spirit. Keep planting. What does it mean to sow to the Spirit? Well, what does Paul say in the next verse? Keep on doing good. Well, well, how do we keep on doing? Do good to the people around you. See, this is why I think when we have a faulty understanding of a fake understanding of law and a cheap understanding of grace, then we got no use for doing good. But if we understand what the Spirit does, then part of walking with the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit is doing good every chance we get. Why? Because it's just another seed. It's just another plant. It's just another step. It's just another step along the way. And over time, you say, well, what's this fruit popping up in my life? Whoa, that looks like patience. <gasps> wow! What's this fruit of it? That looks like gentleness. Something is changing in me. Why? Because I just kept sowing to the Spirit. I just kept walking. Just kept in step. In fact, one of the reasons we do this church calendar here of Ash Wednesday and Lent, Good Friday and Easter is because it's a way of keeping company with Jesus. The gospel reading this morning, Jesus says, keep company with me. So we say, all right, Lord. So we're going to walk through the season where we remember the humility and the sacrifice of Christ. And so we humble ourselves. And we remember Good Friday and His death, and we say, well, on the cross, I was crucified with Christ. And we remember Easter, and we said, God raised Jesus from the dead, and He's raised me up to new life now. And so all through the calendar of the church year, we're keeping company with Jesus. It's also the reason why every week we come to the table. Every week we confess our sin and say, God, have mercy on me. God, forgive me. God, I, I want to keep in step with your spirit convicting me, challenging me, changing me. Bring me to the place of grace again where we thank the Father 
for the gift of Christ the Son, and for the fellowship and power of the Holy Spirit in us. Amen?